0: I'm Steve Backshall and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. I'm here of course with Steve. G'day guys. And Adrian here and we're with Anthony Johnson from SA Quality Reptiles. Hey mate. G'day everybody. Thanks for having us at your place. You're welcome. Beautiful spot and your enclosures are superb.
0: Yeah, it's taken a while to get there but uh, i try my best. And it
2: changes quite frequently. I've known Anthony for eight years now, and every Has time I come long? here, it's a surprise because he would have built something new that always looks awesome and always does the job really well. well
0: so, or just to confuse Steve, I'll just move things around, so it's different <laughs> <Yeah>. every time.
2: <laughs> and I come here weekly, so it's pretty bad.
0: <laughs> it's an illness. It is. <laughs>
2: And you can probably, the listeners can
1: probably hear a frog in the background. What's that frog we can hear, mate?
0: Um, so, yeah, in the enclosure behind us, there's some albino spotted marsh frogs. And uh, the male's currently courting his female. So, they were locked up this morning, and uh, there's already some tadpoles in the water. So, yeah, kind of excited about that. It's the first time I've bred them.
1: The beautiful looking frog, and the setup, that's.
0: Um, it's not quite a true bioactive. Um, there are live plants and some soil content in there, but a lot of it's, it's fake. And it looks, uh, looks real, but yeah, it's, it's not quite. But um, yeah, it's set up so that the water feeds the plants, helps keep the water clarity a bit better because the plants help filter out the ammonia. Yeah. But what it's like, it's a little bit more visually pleasing than just looking at a yeah. sterile frog tank with some aquarium gravel in it.
1: It looks stunning. And it's one of the questions I get a lot is, um, you know, people they want to get an animal, they want to get a reptile or an amphibian and, you know, what what do I get? You know, Can you help me work out Well, I've got this space to fill? And I think the look of the enclosure is a big part of having an animal sometimes too, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think it really depends on what you want out of keeping your animals. Um, As Steve will attest to, you know, when you have a large collection you can't keep every animal in in these really nice, visually pleasing enclosures otherwise you'd need a mansion to, to house everything. I think a lot of the times the visually pleasing stuff is more for us as keepers. Um, you know some of the very basic you know, rack systems as I've got here and Steve's got as well, perfectly fine for the health of the animal and for the care of the animal, but you know not as visually pleasing. Not everybody likes just having an animal in a tub somewhere that they can't see unless they open the tub to get out and play with. So yeah, I think yeah it really depends. If you're after just one animal, then yeah go all out. Have a nice enclosure that's landscaped, that's visually pleasing. It's probably going to be in your living area somewhere, so you know you want something nice to look at as well as something that's that's good for the animal.
1: What would you recommend if someone said, "Look, I've got this, I've got this wall space here. And I want to get a pet." What, what would, if you just, if you just had to have one animal? Would that change depending on what time of the day somebody asked you? Or?
0: I, like, I like all of them. <laughs> um, yeah, it really depends on what they want to get out of keeping their animal as well. You know, um, some animals are look but don't touch. Other people might prefer an animal that they want to cuddle all the time. Um, so yeah, some even just sticking within the one group. So there's some lizards that are well suited to people picking them up all the time. There's others that don't like it. So yeah, it really depends on what you want out of your animal, what sort of interaction you want to have, as well as you know space requirements and things like that, dietary requirements. Some people don't like the thought of feeding rodents to animals or dealing with live bugs. So there might be, you know, some animals that are more suited to certain people because of their own belief in, you know, oh, I don't want to be killing rodents to, to feed my animals. So. Yeah, OK.
1: That's a good point. And I guess, too, um, some of these animals are active at night, some are active during the day, so that, yep. that's a factor, too, if you've got an animal that's hidden all day long. Yes. I had a burrowing frog once, a, a painted burrowing frog, and you just never saw it. I mean, every now and again, 2 o'clock in the morning, you, oh, there he is. Otherwise, it was just this great-looking tank.
0: Yeah, um, I I do know some keepers who have actually completely reversed their day-night cycles purely so that they can see their animals. So you walk into their shed during the day, all the lights are off, windows are blacked out, you go in there at night time, all the lights are on. So they actually think it's night when it's day. So you you can go in there, it's effectively, it's a nocturnal house. Um, So if they're the kind of animals that that you want to keep, there are ways around it so that you do get to see them a bit more often, but... um, yeah, I keep some geckos. Obviously, most geckos, if not all, are nocturnal. So I don't see a great deal of them. Um, but I still do enjoy, from time to time, coming out at night time, opening the cages and feeding them, watching them walk around.
2: And that that is the great thing about coming here. That's why I come here. Not really to see Anthony. Well, was more to see <laughs> to see the diversity of of animals that you've got? You know, you go outside to your pits, which are amazing. We'll talk about those in a minute. And you come inside, you see the geckos, you see the snakes. But obviously, I see a lot of snakes because I keep a lot of snakes at home. Um, Yeah, you come and see the the marsh frogs and and all that stuff. It's just, it can be such a diverse collection of animals to keep, you know, in regards to reptiles, uh, that it can be super interesting. Yeah, skinks, geckos, dragons.
0: Mm. Actually, I don't think there's much here except for venomous that uh, I haven't got. Mm. in... In general terms, I mean, obviously, I don't have every single species, but you know, there's dragons, skinks, geckos, legless lizards, pythons, um, you know, frogs, yeah, so monitors, yeah, monitors, yeah, yeah, mm. new acquisition. So, I forgot that
1: <laughs> you got some beautiful heath monitors there, too. I love, I love
2: them, I love yeah, the they're heath. beautiful. Oh, I really yeah.
0: do like them, they don't like me, though, so that's a bit unfortunate.
2: They <laughs> well, didn't seem to hate you earlier, uh, ah, yeah, I'm working on it, I'm working on
1: it. <laughs> so i guess another factor too is where we live like we're in like australia is a big country we're not in the tropics yep. we're in the temperate zone
0: i guess when you for the listeners you know we're actually in my reptile room at the moment it's actually you know a fairly decent sized shed probably bigger than the average garage i think it measures something about five and a half meters across by 13 meters long and it's all lined out in insulated air conditioned, so like a proper uh, room yeah, yeah. Probably the struggle for me with having so many different animals here is trying to cater for animals that come from the tropics, animals that, you know, prefer colder climates, trying to get the right mix so that you're not endangering one species by keeping them outside of what they should be kept in. And it can absolutely work. Like in my python collection, I keep everything
2: from green tree pythons down to desert stimpsons and that, so it can absolutely work. And you can breed all of these species. You've just, like you say, you've just got to put that little bit more thought into what you're doing
0: yep and i i guess you do really need to stop and think about what each individual animal requires and what's the best position in in your room in your bank of enclosures for that animal um so obviously the more southern stuff i will tend to keep lower towards the floor because obviously you know heat rises so the the, uh, lower cages tend to get colder and also during summer as well so obviously those southern animals aren't used to the high levels of heat that some of your um top end stuff is so being on the floor um for example talking about geckos barking geckos are a great one they they don't like the heat at all so they're always pretty much on the floor during summer um otherwise you'd find you would
1: lose them fairly quickly steve mentioned your pits outside yep there's some stunning dragons out
0: there <laughs> yeah that's that's uh taken a while to get to that level um Steve said that it's always, always something that changes um, and I guess it's that's part of the hobby that I really enjoy apart from just the animals it's just constantly evolving how you keep things trying things a little bit different when you talk to other keepers they give you ideas you think oh I've never thought of that you know that's, a, that's an issue I have and that's how they've overcome that oh perhaps I might try that but then you go well my cages aren't really suited for that I better start again so then you'll build more enclosures perhaps put them in a different area and that's where that second pit that you're referring to with the, the small dragons came about um, you would have seen I do have the larger aviaries down the side of my house and that's great for the southern animals that uh, do prefer sort of colder climates or can tolerate colder climates but doesn't get enough sun during the winter months um, so I have struggled with keeping some animals out there so I had to build all these new enclosures up the back, that gets at least a good eight hours of winter sun, um, which obviously the animals appreciate. Oh, they're thriving. Um, yeah, again a work in progress. As I said to you earlier, I, I like to try and balance my enclosures between visually pleasing but practical. You know, um, if you don't have some practical elements to it, it makes it very hard to manage your animals collecting eggs or collecting hatchlings and things like that. Um, you've obviously got to have access, but at the same time. You want to try and recreate that wild element for those animals to, I guess they call it enrichment, hmm. um, so that they do behave normally. Yeah, uh, you can waste hours out there. So you go out there, like at the moment, the sun's out here in shitty old Adelaide. Um, <coughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only just come out. But you could go out there, and as long as you're quiet and still, you will actually see all the intricate displays that the animals do with one another. You know, they dance and they they interact, head bob. You know, most people are probably familiar with head bobbing from bearded dragons. When your rock dragons, they go to a whole new level. They will actually do push-ups and handstands and curl their tails around and do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And, yeah, you can sit there for hours and watch them. And that's that's part of the reason why I set those enclosures up that way so that, um, yeah, they do behave naturally.
1: They look great. And I love how you've used, like, the natural rocks. You've got the red soils. You've got saltbush growing in there. Yep and the logs you put a lot of thought into it that's great
0: yeah i guess as much as i can i like to not rely on textbooks um opening a book and going oh this this animal comes from here um especially with the rock dragons most of them are all obviously south australian origin i like to actually travel to where they come from with my own eyes look at the places where you will see them and there is quite a bit of difference um for example if you look at um the peninsula dragons that come from middle back ranges you will normally find them in a north facing split rock um, head up to the to the sun so they enjoy having those sort of vertical slits in their rocks then you go over to um arcuna dragons they tend to be laying in between sheetrock and the ground they tend not to sit in between the rock faces themselves Um, So just i guess knowing and and witnessing that for yourself helps you set up their enclosures a lot more suited to to their species and their niche i guess that they have in the wild
2: and that is exactly where like you 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 get excited about the hobby a lot of people look on the hobby as just being let's buy a reptile let's put it in a you know in a tank in a nice (laughs) setup And, and you can make stunning setups but actually getting out in the wild and seeing how these animals live is I think is what makes you a great people when you do these enclosures. And when you when you go out to your, your, your pits that we're talking about, like those dragons are
0: super colourful. Yes. Um, do you find that because they're outside they like that? Oh, most, find them yeah, most definitely. Yeah, most definitely. One thing you actually do hear a lot of when people buy rock dragons, bearded dragons. Oh, it hasn't you know it hasn't coloured up they think it's more to do with the genetics or the line that it's come from and that can have a a little bit of a, I guess, a part to play but all of the I guess accessories and lighting that is sold in the pet shop most of that is I guess what you would consider almost just bare minimum life support. Having done my own research into it UV meters and everything else so your average reptile UV globe that they call a 10% or a desert which is supposed to be high UV output on a winter cold overcast day in the shade line under the eaves of my house still has more uvb content than directly underneath one of these globes so when you consider the amount of heat light saturation full wavelength uva uvb uvc that they get in that natural sun all of that has a part to play in their color now i don't profess to be expert by any means but some of the stuff that I've read actually says that um, dragons see in UV wavelength and that's part of what their colour has to play but the colour that we see is not the colours the dragons will see in themselves so the intensity of the light and the UVA and UVB actually reflects differently off their skin Um, I guess in layman's terms when you look at, if you've ever seen the movie Predator, he puts the mask on, he sees things differently so they see things differently you bring them inside, we don't give them those right wavelengths to reflect off their skin. So they they see each other as very drab, so they become very drab. And we've also we've also spoke. Earlier I should I should about... qualify. That's my understanding of it. It might be completely <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but...
2: When you when you're looking at your pits there's obviously some truth to keep the things outside and inside. And we spoke earlier about the bread light Yes. Which is the same, you know, and, and yep. that doesn't I, I, again i am not totally sure but i don't even think that comes down to you know the uv right just the heat side of it yes that that changes their color and you know makes them red
0: even people who aren't reptile people would know that they are cold-blooded so black and dark colors attract heat so if an animal is cold it makes itself as dark as possible to try and absorb as much heat from the environment as it can um so when you look at bred live when you look at some of these dragons and you'll notice a a massive difference in my dragons between this time of year and the peak of summer their colors are just yeah completely different and so much more vibrant on a really nice warm summer's day than what they would be at the moment i think that's purely down to their temperature Um, there can be other factors involved you know some animals will change color when they're hungry uh, when they're becoming threatened you know all that sort of stuff but just a general happy healthy animal that's going about its business when it's at temperature it's as light as it possibly can be because it doesn't need to absorb more external heat so it makes itself light so that it doesn't act as a heat soak yeah because i've seen
2: bearded dragons that are just black yes and then you know you can get them under these lights or or them out in a warm day and that is it's unbelievable the amount of change that you can get from them it's quite interesting
0: and i guess that's part of the challenge with keeping animals outside you want to be able to give them that heat and that sunshine during the colder months but obviously if you put them in a in a position where during the summer they're getting the full brunt of the summer sun for hours on end without the ability to either burrow go under and self-thermoregulate, then your animal will die very quickly. Um, desert animals still dehydrate very quickly, um, and they have their own ways of coping with that. You'll see the rock outcrops that, that I've got in those enclosures. Even on a summer day, if you put your hand on top or measure the temperature, you, know, you might be sitting around 70 degrees centigrade. I've actually seen Peninsula Dragon still sitting on that rock at 70 degrees, but he's not going to sit there for the entire day sits there for a minute or two and then you'll fossick around and run off but when they're too hot if you would actually lift that rock up the ground is still slightly damp underneath and it's only sitting at around 25 degrees so they can handle high temperatures for short periods of time but then they will I guess and most people understand that concept in, in indoor animals they do need a thermal gradient so the animal will find where it wants to be rather than you're just forcing this one temperature on them oh, yeah, it's, it's not uh, it's not good for them but that's that's something that's had to evolve i guess unfortunately I've, I've had my failures um which end up being a lot of work to have to rejig cages and even as you've seen them now i've still got plans to to add some other dimensions to those cages to benefit the hatchlings versus the adults but yeah i guess as steve said that's that's the part of the hobby that i enjoy Although sometimes it is a, a bit of a chore, constantly monitoring your animals and um, making sure that everything is okay. Sometimes, when when you actually see things that you don't normally see in an animal because they're behaving the way they should, it's actually really rewarding, and that is the best part of the hobby. That is what I want to get back to. And uh, yeah, agreed. And it's just um, awesome. Steve and I are usually pretty much on the same page all the time with uh, the way we keep our animals, um, the way the hobby's going, um, very, very aligned with our opinions on things. Um, and I guess we're, we're both at that point, and Steve will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but both at that probably. point in, in our, in our <laughs> keeping that, it's never been about making money by breeding animals or selling animals. But at a certain point, it costs a lot of money. So you need to try and recoup some some funds. However you can. Unless you're the first person to unexpectedly create a, a new genetic mutation, the money isn't there. So you're forever going to be chasing your tail. And funnily enough, that's why I have snakes. So there's a, there's a very large story that uh, goes along with this, but I'll, I'll give you the footnotes. I'm a dragon guy, as you can see. All of my enclosures outside, you know, the enclosures inside, are all aimed at my lizards. Back when the albino carpet python first came into the hobby i had that many lizards all those mouths to feed and they don't sell for much so it was costing me a fortune so we made the decision to to invest in an animal that would perhaps bring some money back in so that the the collection would would fund itself that didn't go as planned um, and that was a, a large outlay because you know at that stage you're still talking six seven thousand dollars an animal and yeah things didn't go as planned by the time i actually got around to producing albinos that price had tanked to about nine hundred dollars a pop so once you're stung like that i guess you're very reluctant to spend big money if it's just because you're chasing money um to get back into buying something it doesn't matter what you pay for it if it's an animal you really want because you want that animal you'll you'll make that outlay um But yeah, I guess I got stung a bit spending that kind of cash hoping to to recoup some money. Um, It didn't work out. So eventually more and more snakes were had because that's the way the hobby was was going. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of dozen pythons turns into a couple of hundred because you get stuck with a lot. Or then you get the breeder's disease where you go, oh, that one looks a little bit different. i better keep that one. Oh, that that one's got one scale that's a different colour. Oh, there there might be something to that. I'll keep that. What if I can breed that into all the others? I'll breed that (laughs) (laughs) later. Um, And before you know it, you've got hundreds of animals. Yes. Um, But thankfully, I I think I've turned a corner, as as Steve has. You can't keep everything. It's not about uh, just producing animals.
2: And and Uh, don't chase the dollar. You know, we've all had that period where we chase the dollar. But the, the bottom line is, if you enjoy it, it's paying you
0: back Yes. anyway, you know? Perhaps not financially, but... <laughs> oh, look, everybody's got to have a hobby. You're going to spend money on your hobby. Your hobby yeah. might be going to the pub and having half a dozen pints after work every day. That's costing you money, but you get enjoyment out of it, so people, you know, they still do that. I they think I've just things. changed my hobby. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, car people, they probably spend just oh, as much, yeah. if not more, on, on their cars as we would on our animals. Um, if that's something that you get joy from then it's worthwhile Um, when your outlay becomes an emotional drain um, and probably most breeders with large collections have probably been through this cycle the financial strain causes issues on your relationships it does all that sort of stuff it's not enjoyable anymore Um, and yeah you've really got to I guess refocus what you want out of your animals and I guess that's where I'm at now that um, for me it is about as you said the trying the bioactive that's the first bioactive enclosure i've done and and i'm sort of hooked so i'm starting to look at i guess rarer species of frogs that i can start to collect to to do these bioactives and you can hear the male calling in the background again um (laughs) do you get
1: more joy from the outside enclosures, or is that a seasonal thing or
0: um it is very much a seasonal thing um but so is inside you know like when you're cycling your animals to breed then you know there is off periods um, you try not to disturb your animals when they shouldn't be disturbed, I guess. It's, uh, but, yeah, I, I guess everything's a bit more miserable in winter when the sun's not out. So.
1: so if someone's listening and they've got a pet lizard and they've heard about you talking about the, the sunlight and the, the UV and, and they've got an indoor bearded dragon or something, And is that something they could then build a pit for and put outside? What would you recommend to somebody that's thinking maybe this guy might appreciate being outside?
0: Yeah, most definitely. Um again as we spoke about with that uv content you know a good hour outside in the sunshine is better quality light than they'll get all day inside in that cage so in any any opportunity you get to give that animal and dragons especially that natural sunlight is going to be better for their health um but there are ways around it um and again tried a lot of different versions of, of things and a lot of them have failed and that was where the original Avery's came from that idea was just to get some animals outside to get some sunshine. There's a lot of, I guess, readily available things in the pet trade now, like mesh enclosures um, that you can put your animals outside temporarily. It's probably not something I would recommend you do half-heartedly. You really need to know where you're putting your animal, the temperatures they get to. um, Do they still have access to shade? So, yeah, uh, as long as you tickle the boxes and you've actually made, a, I guess, an informed decision as to where you're going to put that that uh, enclosure or aviary or whether it's um, just an outdoor pit for them to run around in for a little while. If it's a short-term thing, then obviously you're going to be there with the animal. You need to monitor those temperatures and watch their behaviour. If that animal starts gaping, then that's their way of thermoregulating when they're they're too hot. That's dangerous. That animal needs to be brought back inside fairly quickly. Um and again, unfortunately, these are all lessons that I've learnt the hard way. Um, you know, having done this for some 35-odd years, You know, when I first started keeping lizards, there was no internet, there was no textbooks to read. You, know, you were that crazy kid that kept lizards. so it was just weird back then, um, to the point you had to actually go around and catch your own bugs out of the garden just to feed your animals. Um, if you were lucky enough to know someone else who had a bit more experience, that was how you learnt to keep animals you know i think uh, these days people are very spoiled you know the hard yards have been done it's a a very common and popular thing now to keep reptiles as pets a lot of people have done all that work for you all you've got to do is click on the internet or go to the pet shop and buy a book and it's like following a recipe you know they can tell you the best way to do things Um, so yeah if you're going to put them outside you, you really need to do your homework first and you know again make sure that you are actually doing the right thing for the animal rather than just thinking you are and it ends up costing you the the life of your pet yeah especially because i
2: guess we're sat here in south australia it's a bit different to us than you know someone in england where i come from might be listening to this and going oh yeah cool i'm going to put mine out in the window <laughs> don't do that <laughs> do your research on temperatures that you need and and yeah make it work for you no there's no qualms at all about putting bearded dragons out in england in the summer to get their uv get them out in a greenhouse or, or something like that but it's it can still work yeah. no matter where you are for sure
0: yeah but again like you say it's just about having some forethought knowing yep. the requirements of that animal and then just doing a little bit of homework you mm-hmm. know again the technology we've got these days makes things very easy and you know, non-contact laser thermometers it takes you two seconds to read yep. a surface temperature we had no mm-hmm. way to do that back when i was a young lad you know you had a mercury thermometer or an alcohol thermometer that would take 10 minutes to actually you know come up you couldn't just quite easily go click i ate 35 perfect yep. you can sit there for a few minutes um And get out there with one of these guns and measure temperature of of
2: where sun is shining and that before you put any enclosure in Oh, of course. Because it gives you you some confidence to put these things together. If you can go out there before you've done anything and go, shit, they are right. It is 35, 40 degrees there, but Um, it's only 20 degrees out. Like, it still works.
0: And I guess having relationships with other breeders, and I don't mean that in a weird way, although Steve and I are quite close, it's not like that. that. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) Is it not? anyway it's, it's not weird man take your hand off my leg
0: <laughs> even when I guess you've been doing it as long as we have we'll, we will always engage in conversations about issues we might have you know when Steve comes around he might ask questions that I haven't considered about my stuff that get me thinking about things that go "Oh shit, well, I better double check that because that's not something I've thought of I don't take anything for granted either you know like most of my animals and enclosures have been up for a couple of years now and you know you 're constantly checking temperatures when everything first goes up. I will still go out there on a regular basis and be checking surface temperatures, you know, checking moisture contents in the ground, things like that. Um, I guess it 's not to say that if you don't do that, your animal's going to suffer, but I like to get all the information I can and just, just constantly monitor things. So if something changes slightly, you 're onto it early. You know, you're not waiting until something becomes such a huge issue that you, you know, start losing animals. Yeah,
2: so that's cool. And and you've got your outside enclosures where you saw the problem with with hatches yes. um, coming out. So you are now changing that to make sure that you've got smaller
0: gaps for hatches to go and. Yeah. So there was a couple of issues there. My first bank of enclosures, they um, say that they don't quite get enough winter sun for. Uh, a lot of species to thrive out there um i guess i should there is a difference between thriving and surviving um so while some animals would survive out there they probably really didn't do all that well um to the point they wouldn't even try to breed uh, but then some animals that would breed out there eggs would never hatch so there was no successful breeding even if there was successful mating and, and egg um, their position there was no hatching so there was something wrong with the environment now the adults themselves as you've seen the water dragons that are out there today you know they, they're fat they're healthy they they do really well they still struggle to actually have viable hatchlings that come out of the ground if they're left to their own devices um, so that's one issue and that's purely about you know let's say the position of the cages, how much light they get the heat during winter and um, even the heat during summer you know, they do still get sunshine and while they're great enclosures for indoor animals throw them out there they get a few hours of sun a day you know even during summer they, they can live out there fine a lot of that stuff has to then come into winter over the issue with the hatchlings with the back enclosures so the season just gone was the first season where pretty much everything out there successfully bred on its own without intervention Um, I deliberately left all the eggs. Nothing was artificially incubated. Hatchlings just popped up out of the ground. (laughs) They were coming up everywhere. (laughs) They were everywhere. Um, And I guess this is the part of the hobby and part of being a breeder that some, some people might not agree with. Sometimes you have to consider survival of the fittest. When you look at the way things happen in the wild, yes, one one lizard might produce 30 offspring how many of those 30 actually become an adult whether it's through predation whether it's through not surviving winters things like that um not all of them get there so and unfortunately all of that still plays a part in my enclosures predation is a real thing parents eat their offspring um and it's 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 hard to pick. While all of those species of rock dragon out there are all very closely related and cousins, you know they're all part of the same um, genus or species. Some would eat their offspring. Others were completely fine and wouldn't be bothered with them. Um, but you think, well, they're fundamentally the same animal from the same environment. Why is this animal eating its offspring and that one's not? So then that led me to. Um, the thought that Steve mentioned about layering pieces of slate and, and pavers with a small enough gap that the hatchlings can actually escape from their parents, but the parents can't obviously follow them in there. Whether that then gives them enough of an advantage to put on some size, they're no longer seen as a food item, um, but also if I do notice that it gives me an opportunity to be able to do something about it. You know, I can start collecting get them to them bring them out. inside to get them away. Um, but yeah, and unfortunately, um, a lot of the offspring haven't survived the winter. So again, I guess the requirements for those hatchlings are a little bit different to the adults. All the adults have thrived. They still come out of winter with a lot of condition on them. Um, whether that's through eating the odd baby or not, who knows? But it's obviously not perfect for the hatchlings whether there isn't enough winter sun because they are so tiny they need to be kept at a, a higher temperature for longer than the adults need um, perhaps that's a factor as well so yeah eventually hopefully to get it right so that i don't lose anything um but yeah i guess that, as we said that's a bit of a survival of the fittest attitude because there are some hatchlings that have have come out from winter and they're fat they're healthy they're thriving and they're great the reason they did so well and the others didn't well who knows whether yeah
2: but but yeah either way you're always trying to think of ways around these things so that like you say so everything can survive and everything yeah you know um and if not you're ready to take them out you've given them a bit of space to be able to get away and yeah and then you can get them out
0: um and the other thing too i guess um Having spoken to other experienced dragon breeders who do keep all their stuff outside, you know, again, they have a lot of similar stories, uh, but then you hear tales where, yeah, the first season that an animal breeds, they're kind of really first-time mothers. They don't know what they're doing. Something moves, they bite it. Oh, sorry, that was a baby, not a cricket. The more experienced adults don't tend to touch their their offspring at all. Um, In fact, the only cage that I've got out there Where there was no predation at all, was a female who had actually been bred inside in captivity a couple of times. Obviously, never left with her hatchlings, but why that makes a difference in her attitude outside, I don't know. Perhaps because she has gone through that process a couple of times. Um, I know they say reptiles don't have a maternal instinct, but um, whether it's just an experience thing, they know that, okay, that's another one of me I'm not supposed to eat it yeah they reproduce yeah. for a reason like yeah it's to make food yeah so we've, we've
2: talked about your outside stuff um, diet wise what do you do with that lot like, out there do they get food
0: that flies into their cages Do you have to feed I have seen you know the odd bee fly wasp flying into the enclosures and you'll see a dragon leap out of nowhere and catch them mid air and that's, that's again one of They're those cool. things that's just awesome to watch um, but you can't rely on that obviously being their food source and they're going to catch enough to do that so again there's logistics around that too you put crickets in there and they get picked off fairly fairly easily but you put too many crickets in there at one time and then the crickets will eat your lizards Uh, especially the, the hatchlings they're so small so you go to putting wood roaches in there so wood roaches the minute they disappear they disappear that's it so then they come back out at night, and next thing you know, you've got roaches everywhere. <laughs> um, so yeah, everything has its pros and cons. I, I tend to give a bit of a mix of uh, crickets and roaches. I guess you just need to be mindful of you're not just throwing handfuls of food in there, you are monitoring each lizard to make sure they are getting enough. Um, I guess when you're keeping animals in groups, but most of mine are in pairs, trios there's actually uh, one group out there of four so three female one male they do develop a hierarchy and so you really need to monitor that the animal that's at the bottom of that hierarchy is still getting enough food and it's not losing condition um again it just goes back to i guess spending the time not just throwing food in there yeah. um i can waste hours like yeah it would be very easy for me just to open cages throw a couple of handfuls of bugs in there 99% of the time that's going to be fine, but then you're getting away from the enjoyment of your animals. So, you know, on a day like today, the sun's out, the animals are out. Again, there's only, what, seven enclosures up the back there. Um, I could spend two hours out there just one by one, slowly throwing crickets in, even using the tweezers. Most of them come and take food from me. Um, but just individually feeding those animals so that you know that they're getting what they need. Um, rock dragons don't tend to. Eat much in the way of vegetation. Where they come from, obviously rock outcrops, most of it's pretty barren anyway. Having said that, though, some of these animals that have been hand raised by me from young will accept some vegetation. Um, there's some of the products on the market, um, I can't sort of speak highly enough of uh, Rapashi. Uh, it was a new product that came out. Unfortunately, it looks like it's not going to be available in Sadly Australia. Mm. Um, but it was a brilliant product i've had animals that are genuinely insectivores that do not eat anything except this pre-mixed food from tongs or out of my fingers um now that's as a hobbyist you think well it's a behavior that shouldn't occur but there's so much good stuff in this product if they're going to eat it great you know um for example crested dragons notoriously finicky animals to keep very difficult um, You know, they're a, they're a heartbreaking animal they're, they're stunning to look at awesome to keep but then out of nowhere you'll get a happy healthy animal just decide that I'm not going to eat anymore and I'll waste away and die to keep them inside they never they are one of those animals that never look anything like what they will outdoors they will just look drab and grey and black um, put them outside they'll get you know the yellows and oranges if you look at my animals outside as not, as much as they look nice they still don't even come close to comparing to a wild crested when you see them you know for real out in the wild why that is i don't know they're getting the sunshine they're getting the daylight there's obviously a psychological trigger in there as well somewhere perhaps I'm not quite meeting the mark for them to do that but they are purely you know um a movement animal so they'll eat their bugs they will chase down and eat smaller dragons and things like that I actually had these animals eating rapashi straight out of the tongs and they the couple of adults I've got here were pretty much raised on that stuff Um, so which is you know the polar opposite to what their diet should be really Mm -hmm. Um, so I try and I guess I'm an advocate of variation yeah although correct me if I get this word wrong anthropomorphism so i can't say that that word (laughs) that's actually really unusual for me because i'm not real broad but i can lift heavy things um most most people i guess attribute um emotional characters onto animals that aren't necessarily always there i tend to view my animals well-being the same way as i would myself you know any one particular food item, while it might be good on its own, if that's your sole diet, you, you're going to lack something somewhere in in your diet overall. So you know, moderation and variation is probably going to give you the best result health-wise in your animals. So you know, even if it is only a little bit of vegetation, if they're still having some vegetation, that's obviously got nutrients in it that bugs and roaches and things aren't going to have. So the broader the spectrum of, of their diet the more likely you're to hit the mark to keep them nice and healthy.
1: And in the wild too, the inverts they're eating are eating from a range of different
2: yes. plant species themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even, even to the point of sometimes, not that I, I sort of really put this forward, but, but even sometimes when you give them some wet dog food and dry dog food and things, like that serves a purpose. It, it does slam some fat into them. Yeah. It does do, But mix it up with other things like get... Don't, don't give it dog food all the time, please. Um, but, yeah, you know, all of these different... We're lucky to have so
0: many diverse, diverse foods yeah. that we can buy and feed our animals now. But I guess, I, again, I come back to, you know, all the other people that have, have done the hard yards and found all this stuff out for themselves that have been able to share this information has made it easy for us. I mean, I would never would have thought of feeding dog food to my bearded dragon when I had my first bearded dragon at eight years old. Mm. Like, you go, well, they eat bugs you know but now to know that yeah that's a good way of supplementing their diet to, mm. to keep body fat on but also from the moisture content keeping their hydration levels up mm. you know it's fortified with extra vitamins that mm. they might not necessarily get from their their and, and on, its, diet.
2: on its own it's a terrible food for lizards yeah, and things I so don't think content. we're we're promoting it but on its no. own it's yeah. a terrible food but every now and then why yeah. not like, but
0: again going back to that variation i think is the key so Again, those Crested Dragons will eat dog food, mm. like canned wet dog food, which is just... They're the only ones that'll do it. None of the other rock dragons will, whether it is because they are partially carnivore with eating other, other lizards in the wild, they, they don't mind the taste of meat, I'm not sure. But, yeah, um, and, and these two animals that I've, I've hand-raised from hatchlings now are probably the most well-adjusted animals I've got. It doesn't matter what I put in front of them. They'll, they'll have a go at it. You know, a lot of other lizards that I've got won't. You know, they're very, I guess, picky on on their diet. But doesn't mean you stop trying because you go, well, it won't eat vegetables. I'll stop offering it. It's like a child saying, well, I'm not eating ice cream. Doesn't mean that's all you give it from from that point on.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's a, you see people do that, don't they?
0: Oh, he loves it, so I keep giving it to him. Yeah,
1: I love crested Bassett and dragons. Never been able to catch one in the wild. I've, I've caught them in pit lines. You're not allowed to. So, oh, no, no, no. I'm not allowed i receive I'm supposed to. to. Okay. That's the only time. So, <laughs> <laughs>
0: you need a net. I think you need a Disclaimer. I, yeah. So <laughs> I think I've done quite well to control my language. I'm not normally one to not swear, but I'm going to have to let one go here. There we I'm, go. A mate of, mate of mine and I, you know, when we go out herping and have a look at a few things, we've got a nickname for crested dragons. They're called the Fuck You Lizard. <laughs> And that's purely because they will sit there and let you look at them because they know they are fast enough to get out of the way. And you can sit there from a couple of metres away and they'll quite happily sit there with their heads up. You get a little bit closer and so it'll move the other side of a bush. It'll never run away, but it'll just sit there and you could spend 15 minutes doing ring a ring a rosy around a bush mm-hmm. trying to get a decent picture of this animal. Mm-hmm. And it always yeah. just stays just that little bit out. Or well, the minute you go to press the button, it'll just move an inch. And then when you get frustrated and you start to you know, move a bit quicker than what you should, eventually it gets sick of it and just goes, fuck you. Yeah. Okay, it's that's gone. it. It's gone. You and won't see it for dust. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's insane. So I, well, I think
1: just a little bit faster than a sand owner. I reckon that's what they're running away from. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah that's <laughs>
1: right.
0: <laughs> to give you an example, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking... Uh, a lizard that's maybe 30 centimetres in total length, so you've got maybe about 10 centimetres snout to vent um, they can be bipedal, so they will get up on their hind legs and, and run on, on their back feet um, so they do have larger back legs I was out looking around out past Wyala one day and I saw some movement outside of mine, as I turned around I just saw a couple of little puffs of dust I thought okay, there was obviously something running past, I thought it was a rabbit it was that it was that quick, and, and these puffs of dust were that far apart. And as I walked over, I saw this little Crested Dragon sitting underneath one of the uh, Mallee outcrops there. And, again, he let me look at him for a couple of minutes, and then tr- he was gone. And as he ran off, I went out and had a look at his tracks, because then I put two and two together. This was the thing that was making those little puffs of dust as it was running. And for an animal with a snout vent of 10 centimetres... Its footprints were at least 30 centimetres apart, hmm. so it was getting up on each, you know, on its back legs and having a, a full gait of at least 30 centimetres between each step. So you know, to be able to do that, you can imagine how fast it was moving. Yeah, that's, that's almost that's borderline flying, isn't it? Yeah, I <laughs> well, it's like I don't know enough about there's exotic. another Anthony fact yeah, coming yeah. up <laughs> no, no, no. well I don't know where they come from but it's not an Australian native species but, but they call it a Jesus that Jesus actually Christ, walks, on, yeah. walks on water very similar body Bassanus. shape Yeah, yeah. No, long back legs but it can run that fast that it walks on water so yeah you can imagine yeah. how much sort of speed and power that takes to be able to get up and move like that and the Christians will do the same thing Oh, if you turn around, we've got a visitor. My lace monitor's finally come out of a, or his um, log, and is looking at us, wondering why we are wearing headsets. Thinking, which one can I eat first?
2: <laughs> so that's, uh, that's very cool. Um, any future projects? I, I don't want you to go into all the changes you're probably going to make here over uh, <laughs> the next three months.
0: It's a whole other episode. A, yeah. <laughs> Define projects. Oh, no. <laughs> No, I mean, I mean the yeah. front The front room we're sitting in um, has a few vivariums uh, in them. I'd like to put more vivariums in this front room, purely so it's more of a, a visually pleasing area for the animals, so that you can, you know, we talked about having that one and only animal, you want it to, to look nice and everything else. Well, I'd like this whole room to be a visual area, so that when you come in you can see your animals, landscaped enclosures and everything else uh, rather than just being racks and tubs and things that we've got Um, pythons included Um, you know I actually quite enjoy coming out here and seeing some of my pythons curled up on their branches and things like that at night time so I'd like to see more of that I would like to actually start to get away from pythons a little bit Um, tree snakes are something that sort of fascinates me even just colubrids in general Um, have kept brown tree snakes in the past Um, back before anyone ever really had them and they seem to have become popular again of late but yeah so i'd like to get back into that even some what people consider boring animals like slaty greys things like just things that i've never kept before again just just to keep that passion that hobby there and the interest and just learning new things about different animals all the time um you know the python thing has been done done to death i guess so
2: yeah, it's not, like not really not far, much of a yeah, challenge not anymore nothing new that you can start with oh and Pellies
0: God. One I'm not, day. not prepared to mortgage the house just you know, yet yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, but yeah I guess for me it's just yeah, again just trying new things with, with animals that I haven't kept before things that might have different requirements so nutting out those little problems for different animals um, you know we talked about pythons and the, the, the challenge there you yep. know there's not much in the way of pythons now because they are so big in the hobby that uh, they're not hard to breed. I mean, there are one or two out there still that are, do have an unknown element to them, I guess, like the Owen Pellys. Um But when you're talking carpal pythons, children's pythons, or the Antaresia group, things like that, open a book, follow a recipe, you're pretty much guaranteed to get a result. So there's not much of a challenge there. Plus, I have bred them for you know a number of years now, so... I guess i don't want to get stuck in this rut of breeding things just because i can you know if it's something that i haven't done before i would like to do it for my own personal satisfaction um, rather than just there's a market for it i'll breed these to sell these you know i mean my olive pythons are a great example i bred them this year purely because i've never bred olive pythons before there's uh, certainly a lot of people out there breeding them they're not they're not worth a great deal. These uh, don't have any special genetics like the albino in them. They're just a, a normal olive python. But again, there was a challenge for me. I'd never bred olives before, you know. And they're uh, not easy to breed, so it is a challenge. Yeah. Um, and the jury's still out. Mm-hmm. While my female's ovulated, as Steve pointed out. It's a small ovulation. They could still come out infertile. yet. Um, but again, there's, there's, there's an unknown to it. So there's a bit of a challenge in that interest of seeing how that animal differs from... The experience and the knowledge I've got when it comes to carpet pythons or, or children's pythons. Um, so, I guess that's where the, the colubrids and things come in as well, you know, even eventually. So, I would like to get back into keeping vents at some point. Um, Unfortunately, I've got my sensible dad hat on that, uh, you know... And Steve sat next to you. <laughs> Steve's scared of snakes, by the way. Yeah. Um.
2: <laughs> the ones that can put me through a world of pain. Yes, I am.
0: <laughs> yeah, you keep a scrub python. That hurts. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I would never go to the extent of, you know, things like taipans and, and all that sort of stuff. But um, I guess a bit of my background, I, I did spend my time as a snake catcher, you know, removing venomous animals spent my time working in wildlife parks with you know, with venomous animals and you know, saltwater crocs and all that sort of stuff um, there is something I think very different about the compared to pythons um, there's just an intelligence behind them so I would like to get back into keeping some of the lower level stuff um, and by lower level I mean obviously stuff that I'm not going to die if it bites me um, but until my, my kids get to an age where i can genuinely trust that if i tell them this is out of bounds that accidents won't happen they won't open the wrong cage um things like that um perhaps even to the point when i'll, I'll wait until the kids leave home and yeah it's uh, yeah because when safe. you say to yeah. kids don't go in that
2: cage because it's highly venomous that's like saying go in that cage because yeah. there's nothing deadly in there <laughs> Now you're sitting here in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle
0: T-shirt. Do you keep any turtles, mate? (laughs) I do actually. Well, there's another whole story behind that. I do have some turtles outside. Um, Just your basic Murray River turtles. Um, You know, the old pet shop animal. Um, Nothing special about them. Well, they're 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 underrated. They're awesome.
1: They're awesome. Yeah,
0: I should clarify. You know, they are a great animal. They're a great pet. Unfortunately. Most people see them at the size of a 50 cent piece in a pet shop, and they go, "Oh, that's cute." But then they get to the size of a dinner plate, and they go, "What do I do with it?" Well, yeah. most people keep it in the same
1: tank they had it in when it was a baby. <laughs> yeah. and it's got no yeah. dock and it just <laughs> or, or swims they, its whole life. Yeah,
0: or they contact someone who is actually keeping animals to say, "Do you want a free turtle?" Right? Like, yeah. I would have nothing but turtles in here if I kept everything that people had offered me over the years. Is it
1: funny that with turtles, so in, that uh, as a baby they're quite expensive. As an adult, you can't give them away. It's yeah. the complete opposite.
2: It's, exact, for a, yeah, it's, it's a, exactly a the same or as or Burmese, Burmese pythons in the UK. Like there was at some stages where mm-hmm. you get a baby Burmese that would be worth a bit of money. You'd get this like ten foot to fifteen foot, where you, they would they would be needing rehoming they're just free you can have as many as you want and then you get 15 foot plus and they become really expensive (laughs) (laughs) people want these enormous giants
0: yeah yeah i guess that's indicative of human nature i guess isn't it um and that's not just reptiles it's it's all animals people want pets that are cute and cuddly and the minute they're not or they become a an imposition they they want to get rid of them and offload them you know um I guess, once you've kept hundreds and hundreds of animals like, like Steve and I have, you don't form that same sort of emotional attachment that you would if you only had one pet. Um, doesn't mean you don't care for that animal. Um, you just have the ability to, I guess, not treat it like your child. But we still go in buying an animal with the understanding that this animal lives for 35 years. That's, that's its lot in life, well, we're, we're keeping that animal for that time frame. Um, Obviously, we sell offspring and things like that. But um, you know, I've still got some of the first animals that uh, I ever bought when I moved into this property and, and started up. So I had a, a couple of years off as a young lad where you know drinking and partying became more important than keeping snacks um, But yeah, I've still got those those original animals, and I won't get rid of them because there there is a little bit of an emotional attachment, you know. But um, yeah, some people go in for that. I guess impulse buy or that pet shop mentality where they see something, they
1: go, oh, that's really cute. When you talk about turtles, that can be 70, years.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, or even stumpy tail lizards. You know, there's another one. You know, I know of a, a, a keeper who actually obtained a stumpy as an adult, and it was an extremely large adult, so you could make the assumption that um, you know, it was probably all, already well into its lifespan, and he's had that thing for nearly 40 years. And it's still going, you know. Um, that attitude that animals are a disposable item, I guess, it upsets me a little bit, you know. Mm. If you're going to take on an animal, then you, know, you agree to do your best to take that animal on for the rest of its life, not um, you know, the minute it becomes an imposition you get rid of it. On, you know? Unfortunately, now with snakes being as cheap as they are, it almost promotes that attitude as a throwaway item. You know to the point now where um you know knowing a few of the snake catchers around adelaide finding pythons dumped because there are there are no pythons that are actually um endemic to the adelaide region i'm aware of you've got to go out a little bit to find the murray darlings but you know finding jungles and bread and things like that dumped in suburbia and unfortunately they're not escape pets people just get sick of keeping them and think that they're doing the right thing and just open the cage and and let them go, Um, it's a horrible way for them to die because they they don't survive. They won't suffer
2: our winter here in
0: South Australia. No, no, not at all. And even if
1: it's a local animal, if it's been kept inside in the warm, you can't just put it outside and survive a winter. exactly. One of the horrible things I see is the trends. I understand that there's trends, but things get undervalued because they're not worth much. So that's not a great animal. And when you've got a new person coming into the hobby trying to consider an animal that's for them, you know, we are all a little bit, you know, we want to get something that our friends think is cool. Yeah. You know, so a great example is more pythons. For a while there, they were, they were super expensive when they first came in. And then they just went straight downhill and plummeted and they weren't cool. They're an amazing animal. They're an endangered animal. I think ignore the trends because that's going to always fluctuate. You know, don't go, well, they're worth something. I'm going to buy them and breed them because that's going to change. Yeah. you know, It's not a share market thing. It's try to find the pet that you like. Yes. You know, Consider like, like you were talking about earlier. Like, Is it diurnal? Is it nocturnal? Is it temperate? Is it tropical? Can you handle it? Is it something you're going to stand back and look at? Um, are you, do you want to breed it? What are the issues associated with it? What it, Do you recommend... Um, any particular like people read some books like you said talk to experts
0: oh, oh I use that term very loosely experts, experts. Oh. Um, isn't Steve an expert? no Anthony is yeah, I get all of my, all, all my information <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's a very arrogant person that would call themselves an expert in anything the minute you think that you know everything yeah, it's whatever. the minute you're full of shit <laughs> um, there is always something new to learn you know your experiences might not be the same as somebody else's so you know while you might think you know everything somebody else has had a different experience with that same animal that's given him different knowledge that's a bit off topic for the question that you asked but uh, <laughs> i just yeah i don't like it when you see self-proclaimed people calling themselves experts you know? they're normally people that
1: have been around for up two minutes
0: yeah unfortunately um you will not for those of you that are on Facebook, you'll notice that Steve and I actually don't get on Facebook a great deal purely for that reason, you know. I learnt the hard way, you know. You see people post things on Facebook with genuine um, concerns about their animal. So you go on there to, to try and help this person and, and give some actually well-informed Advice that's been learnt from thirty odd years of experience in keeping these animals, to then be slammed by about fifty people who have kept a snake for about one week, yeah. and tell you you don't know what you're talking about, you know. And then unfortunately, this poor person who's looking for advice doesn't know head from tail, no. and it's the animal that suffers for it. Um, so yeah, people that call themselves experts, I, I really question where they're coming from with that. But um, but there are some good books. Um, the Bearded Dragon Manual is actually a really, really good book if you're thinking about keeping Bearded Dragons. Um, it's very rare for me to, to pick up a book and read its entire content and not disagree with something at some point. Or I've had a different experience that's given me a, a different idea on certain things. That book there actually nails pretty much everything. Every, every issue I've ever had keeping Bearded Dragons is addressed in that book you know any question you could ever ask is answered in that book and you know it, if you're looking at going down the path of buying a bearded dragon i guess and this is one thing for parents when we talked about pet shops you've got to consider that all right you see a bearded dragon for sale for, for 95 dollars which is about the going price in a pet shop then you might have to buy the enclosure that it's, it's in but there's other costs associated with, with that animal that you really need to invest in first, like going and buying that book. Don't trust what people say on the internet because most people don't know what they're talking about and it's false information.
1: Well, um, I'll just say that there are some great people on there that do give advice, but if you are new, you, you don't know who the great people are. That's, yeah, look, that's, it? Yeah. But
0: unfortunately, that is why most of the people who do know what they're talking about tend to take a back seat because they get sick of being smashed and lost in the crowd of voices of people who don't know what they're on about yeah to the point now where i actually don't don't engage mostly if there is something that i think someone is posting that is a genuine serious concern about their animal i will private message them yeah okay um and tell them you know by all means call me and i can i can have a conversation with you i'm not gonna argue with 15 other people who don't know what they're talking about um but I guess that's part of going into animal keeping, with all the information that is necessary. You know, it's not just a matter of buying the animal, putting it in a cage, and hoping for the best. You know, um, whether it's marsupials, cats, and dogs, you know, anything, you really need to know what you're getting into. You know, making sure that you've, I guess, ticked all the boxes with your basic husbandry and all the things that you're going to need. Um, And we talked about, you know, people breeding things just for money. Unfortunately, one of the downsides that I see, you get... There's normally people new to the hobby, like you said, them, you know. They see that people advertise snakes for a couple of hundred dollars and then they find out that that snake will have 30 eggs at a time. And then they do the math in their head and they go, I could make thousands of dollars breeding this (laughs) snake. Then they, I guess, I always try to educate people by all means. If you're going to breed your animals... Do it for the right reasons. I don't tell anyone not to breed, you shouldn't breed, you know, by all means. Breed away. But you've got to do it for the right things, you know. Do it for the experience. It's a rewarding experience to know that you've done everything that that animal requires to be happy enough to have actually reproduced, you know. It's it's not an easy thing if you don't know what you're doing. Um, To then be able to successfully incubate eggs, to be able to raise those hatchlings, you know, that's all it's all good information it's all really enjoyable stuff to do but if you're doing it purely because you're thinking dollar signs you're going to fall on a heap very quickly if you're doing it because you love it you will get that reward that we spoke about earlier of you know you can't lose you can't you can't lose but you've got to go in with your eyes open and understand that if you breed an animal and you're new to the hobby and whether it's right or wrong, if you're the new kid on the block, you're the last on the very long list of people who are actually breeding that animal. Their name's already out there. When people want that particular animal, they ask around, oh, go and see Steve. He He's right into his black pythons. You want black pythons? Everybody that asks me, I don't keep them. Go and see Steve. He knows his stuff. He's got some good animals. Um, he's and we'll right, put he's intro- right. Yeah, we'll put some information <laughs> on how to contact Steve. One no. of <laughs> um But, yeah, so if nobody knows who you are, you are going to find it very difficult to move your animals on. So then, unfortunately, you get stuck with all these animals with no infrastructure in place to be able to deal with that because people think that, oh, yeah, they sell and I'll get my money and I'm out. No, 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 you you actually need to have individual housing for all of those hatchlings. You're going to have to feed them. You're going to have to, you know, get them to a certain age. Yeah, so there's that flow on effect that people don't consider the amount of time to deal with hatchings i
2: don't know how you
1: guys do it i've bred a few pythons over the years and it's it is time consuming but it
2: is that whole thing like you're saying it's that's all part of the hobby so get into the hobby get your snakes get your lizards whatever you want grow them up for a few years learn about them and then as a natural thing like in a hobby you're going to want to breed them and then you might mess up your incubation a bit so you learn by that so yeah. you're gonna you know it's, it's a great hobby to get into and you're right just don't do it because you're going to make money
0: yeah um you really need to understand every aspect of, of what you're going to do and, and do it for the right reasons i mean nobody wants a flooded market by any means i mean self-interest at, at, uh, at heart here the more people breeding the harder it is for me to sell that's why I've made that decision that that is no longer what I do or why I do it. Um, I mean, it's never been the whole reason, but there was always a little bit of that to it. Um, why compete with people to sell things to make money if, if you don't have to, if you're doing it because you love doing it? You'll give them away. To the right people. To the right to the people, right I should people. say, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's how oh, I understand. I give my animals away to the right people. Yeah.
0: I yeah. agree I mean, it's one of those things that um, you can't always guarantee the, the, the home that your animal's going to is going to be perfect, but, you know, I do always like to make sure that I'm happy with that person. As best as I can be with the limited knowledge I'm going to have, you have conversations with them, you know, all that sort of stuff, and, you know, certain things ring alarm bells in your head. So, uh, yeah, people are that. It'd be hard to, to sell work animals. in a pet
1: shop. Just to sell animals to some people. I mean, it's hard enough with me. Like with Tam, she will just put people through the ringer. Oh yeah, what are you going to do with it in ten years? What are you going to keep it? What are you going to feed it? Just,
0: yeah. I mean, it's good. Yeah, I mean, it is good. And if you're not <laughs> if you're not prepared to be able to answer those questions, perhaps you actually need to look at yourself a little bit and go, well, am I ready to take on that animal? Mm. You know. Um, but yeah, I guess it's part of keeping animals that, yeah, you, you really need to go in eyes open and not just keep things because they're cool at that point in time and, yeah, be aware that you're going to be stuck with them. We're well, not stuck with them. You're going to have to enjoy them for, for a long time.
1: Yeah. Mate... Thanks so much for, you know, showing us around. I know Steve comes here all the time, but I have not been here before and I'm very impressed. As very, I say, hey, m- every, every
0: time he time. comes here, it's his first time because yeah. everything's changed. <laughs> everything's changed.
1: Um, beautiful exhibits, mate. I love your animals and I love, I love your passion. And thanks so much for very, being very humble and sharing your information um, with us today, mate. Thank
0: That's you. That's amazing. Thanks, Anthony. That's uh, what it's all about sharing sharing information and trying to get the hobby out there for other people to enjoy and get that next generation of keepers and yeah great
1: beautiful mate and guys thanks for listening
0: thanks